what Christ has called you to, should at times shake you to your very core. I remember it was the night of the tornado, and then it was the night after the tornado. And, but there was an occasion, I remember just leaning against a wall, and my knees began to shake, and I just slid down the wall, and I sat, and I covered my head. And I began to weep as I thought of the scope of what had happened on that storm. It was a mile wide, the tornado had done, and 13 miles long. 7,000 homes were destroyed. 300 families at College Heights had lost their homes. And the list begins to go on. 161 of our neighbors had been killed. And somehow I knew, I knew it was a time and place that God had placed me and others. And the scope just seemed too big. That pales in comparison to what you've been called to. That was just a storm. You're the one who stands in the place of Christ. And on behalf of Christ, you stand where light and dark meet. You stand in neighborhoods and communities. You stand in places that spiritual forces battle. It's not just little things. It's the woman who called me this morning. I answered my phone and... And she's, she's begging, please, please pray for my 14-year-old granddaughter. And she began to tell me this story, a story of 24-hour care. A girl who hates herself so much is trying to take everything she can to take her own life. And, and, and she's, she's weeping on the phone with me. We're not church mechanics. We're not church technicians. We're not people going out and filling slots and roles in congregations. We're, we're, we're the people who are the incarnate people. I know that sounds a little, little, little strange, but because we tend to talk about the incarnate one being Christ, and, and he, he is, my goodness, took on flesh, and Christ the incarnate, who came in the flesh. But when I read Colossians chapter 1, and I'm kind of blown away by what that text says, it almost sounds heretical. It's where Paul says, you know, he says, I, I fill up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul, do you not know lightning bolts can come for things like that? What in the world could be lacking in Christ's affliction? And Paul's simple answer in that passage is, I get to stand with this group of people in this place, in the place of Christ, and I get to suffer on their behalf. For the sake of Christ. That's what's always lacking. The neighborhood you came from, you know what was lacking in Christ's affliction? Someone to stand there incarnate like Christ and to love these people. What was lacking in Christ's affliction? I read through everywhere in Scripture, you are the incarnate people. That's who you are. You're not asked to learn skills or talents or roles you go do. Oh, you'll do some of those things. But we're not orators on a stage. We're not event planners. We're not worship service organizers. We're the incarnate people. We're the letter of Christ, the living letter of Christ, not written with ink, but, but written by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but, but on the human heart. We are the incarnate people. When you leave here, as if you're not doing it now, but, but when you leave here, you'll move into a neighborhood, and your job in that neighborhood is to be what Christ would be in that neighborhood. You will sit with the women that nobody else cares about. You'll be the one who finds little scoundrels that nobody, they don't matter to anybody else, but you'll go to their house. You'll be the one who goes to the house of people who are sick. You'll be the one 
who like a seven-year-old boy carrying a bucket of water can't keep it from spilling. You're the one who's been in the word and it just slops everywhere. And so when you're at the Waffle House or IHOP or anywhere else, you end up talking about the word. You're, you're the incarnate people. We're not here to teach you church tricks. And church tricks come too easy. To live incarnate is the call. I, I know other people use the phrase. I, I know it's the right phrase. Still scares the bejeebers out of me to say it. But you are little Christ. And that's not a phrase that's easy for me to say. Because there's such a difference. And yet on the other hand, the same way Christ came incarnate, that's who you are. So how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? On the one hand, it's such a scary job. I mean, my goodness, what do I do with these divorces? What do I do with the suicidal kids? What do I do with people who hate each other? What do I do with bigotry? What do I do when I face the dragon? The other side of that is really is a privilege. It really is Christ going, come on, kid, we're going to go slay dragons. Come on, kid, we're going to take everything the dragon is tearing up, and you are going to be the advanced force of the kingdom. You're going to advance the kingdom there. Come on, kid, you're going to go to that little small town, hardly has any youth group, two bars and one stoplight that works half the time. You are Christ there, and we're going to roll back the darkness because of your life. How are you going to do that? You don't do it with one more cheap trick. You don't do it by the force of personality. You don't do it with the force of some clever idea. How do you do it? This is all setting up where I want to go this morning, by the way. It scares the bejeebers out of people who are responsible for time. There's an allegory I want to give you. And I know it's an allegory. That allegory is pretty simple. It goes like this. When David went to fight his battle, there were people who said, David, you need to wear this and you need to wear that. And David, you need to put this on. And David, you'll need this. And David, and David's putting on Saul's armor. And here's a, here's a 16-year-old kid kind of lumbering out, wearing all the things that people said you really need for the battle. And, and David was smart enough to know that's not right. And David stripped it all off. And basically David found... He would look to be the most unarmed man you ever saw. He found five smooth little stones and he put those in a bag and with that he fought his battle. Can I tell you, the church has always had fads. The only advantage to being a bit of an older guy in this room is I can tell you I've gone through the fads. I was there in the 1970s when planted the church and Gene Getz was flying up to evaluate our church. I was there when they were writing magazine articles about the youth group that I helped start. I was there. I've watched the fads. I know what the fads are. I know how we dress you up and send you out. I, myself, dressed people up in ways. So this is the way you go fight your battle. In some way, the allegory is that all that armor needs to fall off because there's five little stones. And I'm not going to take the allegory too far. But, but you just need five little stones because ultimately that really is where the battle is. And no matter how the fads come and go, this is what you need. I get to talk about the one of them today. You're going to get to be somebody of prayer. You get to be somebody of prayer. Depending on how time goes today, I want to hit two or three reasons why to hold and, and hang on to prayer for all it's worth. Why to be a person who hangs on to it with a desperation you never knew you had. A sweet and wonderful desperation. 
The first reason for why you will need to be a person of prayer is that we have no other model of how to do ministry or how to live incarnate besides a life of prayer. I'm going to say a phrase that means a great deal to me. I, 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 I hope it kind of resonates with you, but Jesus didn't give you the principles of how to do ministry. Jesus gave you the way to do ministry. It is possible to study scripture and find principles that you say, wow, that's really important. I need to put that away in my box of principles. And Jesus is going, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm showing you not principles of how to do ministry. I'm showing you the way you do ministry. When I say Christ, I'm going to go stand incarnate in Walker, Missouri or, or Joplin. Or I'm going to go stand somewhere here at Diamond. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm, I'm going to go to Osaka. I'm going to be in Frankfurt. I'm going to be in Demo, India. I, how do I do it? What do I do? I'm just me. Look at me. It's, it, what do I do? The scriptures say, look at how Christ did it. This is what you'll do. There's 40 places in scripture that you can find that Jesus' prayer life is accented, pointed to, and described. These 40 places in scripture will describe you uh, praying at his baptism, praying in the morning, praying as was his habit in the morning, praying on the side of the mountain, praying before a healing, praying after a healing, praying all night, praying alone, praying with the disciples, praying when he's joyful, praying when he's sorrowful, praying when he's troubled, praying when he's making decisions, praying before teaching, praying at meals, praying with children, praying for Peter, praying for the lost, praying for the church, praying from the cross, praying for the resurrection. It's a life that takes hold of the hand of the Father. It's where the life of intimacy and power is. I, several years ago, kind of began to change how even my own posture for prayer. I think for a long time I had just simply bowed, put my hands in my lap and I, and I would pray. Sometimes I certainly would have them on a table. But several years ago I began to start, and I can't hardly keep but one hand from going. And it's a simple little picture. Because I've had nothing but children and grandchildren my whole life that if they've come beside me have grabbed a hold of my pant leg or grabbed a hold of my hand. Almost I wanted to bring Campbell today. Campbell's the two-year-old. Because I know the most natural thing is if Julie had set her on the stage and let a little two-year-old, you would have scared the bejeebers out of her too. She would have come running to me because white-haired old men she thinks are interesting. But Campbell would have come to me, and I know exactly what she would have done. She would have grabbed my pant leg, or she would have grabbed my hand. That is what Campbell does, or she would have thrown her arms up. My very posture of prayer has almost turned out to be, I don't have anything, God. I don't have anything. I'm over my head. I'm invited into a privilege beyond what I can believe, and I don't have anything if it's not intimacy with you. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples bump into the power of Satan in ways they've been bumping into it all along, they just didn't know it. But they bump into it in a way they don't fully understand, and they couldn't do anything about it. And they asked Jesus why they were so powerless, and his answer is only by prayer. There was a, a bit of a scoundrel who lived in our part of the country. I've got to keep this pretty generic. I knew of his family. It was a family in massive disarray. This 
why I can't give you his name as he was the doctor who also performed abortions in this part of the country. He, he was a man who had no interest in spiritual things and the wickedness of his life besides the set the abortion issue aside I, I, I knew of his life and his family. I, I sat one day in the front row between services with him. A man who had come to Christ, a man on fire for Christ, a man whose life he had thrown everything of wickedness that he could find and thrown it away, and a man who said, here's, here's my life. I've, 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 I've taken life a long time with these hands. How do I use them to give life? And as I'm sitting there, this guy has tears running down his cheeks as we're talking, and he's going, I don't understand how I move from such darkness to such joy and such light. I don't know how I move from such brokenness to such life. And his only answer was, there's a power of God. There's a power of God beyond imagination. That concept ultimately has been one that if you want to know some guy, I spent 40 years in the located church in ministry. I'm going to tell you the force of personality, the force of... The persuasion, the force of talent and speaking, the force of anything else is cheap and it has no power. It doesn't move men from darkness to light. There is a power of God. And Christ himself incarnate reaches in as the power of God. I've been in 25 countries for the most part with, with, with watching what God has done around the world. A lot of those are closed countries, Afghanistan, Laos, the Sudan. I remember we went into Laos, and we're going in where a veteran missionary says, he said, my own hands almost shake to go into this region. He said, it's, it is so dark. It is such a dark place. He said, and we, we don't know where we're going to do. He said, this was exploratory. I don't know what we're going to find. But I know how dark this place is. And I remember having a prayer meeting. We, we had a prayer meeting. It was basically at an old barn. There was about four of us sitting in a barn. And we prayed. And we go into that town. And, and when we go into the town, the next day, we, I mean, the day we get into the town, it's the next morning, a man comes up to the group. And I'm leaving some of the details out, but he comes up and he says, so-and-so had a dream last night, and the dream last night was about the cross on the far side of a field, and he didn't understand it, and, and people are falling into graves, and, and, and somewhere a white dove lit beside him and said, I'll show you, I'll show you how to get to the cross, and you don't have to fall in the graves. And a man who knew almost nothing about Christianity is asking, will somebody explain to me what the cross means? Would somebody explain to me about what a white dove means? Could somebody describe to me how we don't just keep dying and have death and that night that night in a city that we didn't have any context any place that night Kamsan our dear friend went to that man's house well we met on our knees and we prayed God this is a dark place if you don't do something we don't have anything the force of personality what are we going to do with that and we prayed and I remember a knocking on the door scared us man we all jumped and knocking on the door Julie sitting here nodding her head we opened the door and there was a man we Am I coming in and out? I do that a lot in my speaking. And the man at the door said, Kamsan. 
come son needs more because this man has invited his sons and his daughters and they taught till around midnight or one o'clock in the morning with the curtains all pulled and it was Christ alone and all we were is incarnate who showed up in a location and God himself does I don't know what you're going to do with youth groups but I'm going to tell you you're not going to turn the world all over around one more time with a pizza party or one more activity now I'm in favor of the pizza party I have no problem with that But I'm going to tell you, your ministry of incarnate is prayer. At its core, I understand better why Jesus would say, my God's people will be a house of prayer. If you're not good at prayer, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, but if you're not good at prayer, can I tell you, you're attacking the gates of hell with a water squirt gun is all you got. On the other hand, The ministry is prayer. Paul didn't think prayer was just a principle. He thought it was how you do ministry. Over 40 times, Paul talks about night and day and unceasingly prayed. My own life in ministry changed in the mid-90s. I think I've had, I think I carried a soft arrogance. I hope it wasn't a harsh arrogance, but I know it was an arrogance. I've always been a halfway decent debater. I've always been someone who had the ability at least at some level to have a conversation where I could be somewhat convincing. I've had a little compassion. And I think I operated out of those. And I believed in prayer. Don't misunderstand me. But I think I had Saul's armor on. If if, if I had 100 pounds to invest in something, I'm sure I gave 5 to 8 pounds to prayer. But I think I may... Invested the other 90 plus pounds and other things. It was the first extended fast I'd ever done. The fast is actually not even what turned out to be. This is again mid 90s. As I would be take a couple of hours in the afternoon during this extended fast to go pray, God gave me such overwhelming conviction of Randy, you don't know how to pray. Well, I thought I did. I preached on it. I teach it. I've I've written prayer notes. I thought, no, Randy, I don't think you know how to pray. Not the way I want you to pray. I remember one day sitting in a car. It was February, so I didn't go on prayer walks. I would have done prayer drives because I like my heater and I'd turn it up. (laughs) But I remember sitting in a car weeping. Going, God, I want to know. I want to know how not to live in my own power. I want to live in something that is from you, not from me. I'm sick of me. I I, I want you. And I memorized, I just started memorizing Paul's prayers. And as the weeks went by on this fast, and as the weeks went by as I'm memorizing, it just began to overwhelm me what Paul was praying. And when Paul prays, he prays not the way I've been praying. And, and in fact, I'm going to tell you right now, you, you want to do a, a ministry of preparation? Somewhere in the sequence you decide, I want to learn what Paul prayed for. And I w- there's eight to ten things, depending on how you, eight, 
8 to 12 things, but honey, I want to outline it that Paul prays. And he prays in more specific ways, and he prays for more kingdom things, and he prays in ways that sh- shook me. And, and then Paul writes to people and tells them he's praying for them. And so I began to write notes and tell them I was praying for them. And this time I began to write in the notes, and I began to say the kinds of things that Paul prayed for, and I prayed for them. I would sit in the street, and I could see houses, four or five houses of people who went to the congregation I was involved with, and I would pray for them, and I would pray and write those notes. And I wasn't trying to be eloquent. I wasn't trying to be anything except just to the heart of the matter. It was almost like God thought, Randy, you are the slowest learner, so I'm, I'm going to make sure that, I, that, that you see this. The very first week I started doing that, I walked in on a Sunday morning, and people were grabbing me in the hallway and taking me in classrooms and began to weep and throw their arms around and say, you have no idea what that meant. You have no idea. And they began to open their chest, and suddenly an incarnate life began to take on power. I was speaking at the end of that extended fast. I was speaking at a, at a church in southern Missouri. And I didn't want to have meals because I did want to finish the time period that I'd set. But how do you meet with people if you don't have meals? And so I decided that what I would do is, is I said, I don't know if anybody will do it, but would you, would you ask people if they'd be willing to sign up if, if we could just come by and pray with them? Because incarnate people pray with and for people. That's what we do. That's what we do. That is the ministry. It's not the only thing in the ministry. We're also people who bring compassion. We're also people who bring the word. We're also people who call a movement of other shepherds. But, but the ministry is we pray with and for people. And so I said, would you see if they sign? I had no idea if people would sign up or not. I had about 15 or 16 families sign up that it was okay late afternoon or before the meeting or after the meeting to come to their house and pray with them. Very first one, the preacher of that congregation couldn't even go with me. He had an emergency, somebody at the hospital, a heart attack. And so he said, do you mind going by yourself? And I met a group of strangers, a deacon in the congregation, sixth grade boy, second grade girl, kindergarten boy, wife. And I go to this house of strangers and I said, there's not a lot of things I can do in life, but one of the things I can do is pray. And I'd be honored to pray with you. And they, they, had, they had signed up to let us do that. And all I did was I sat and met him and talked a little bit. And, I, and it's like God gave me a Damascus Road experience that day. This is your ministry. Randy, I'm not giving you principles of how to do ministry. I'm giving you the way you do ministry. And I began to pray for them. And I prayed for them by name. And as I finished the prayer, there's this, <gasps> scared me. And the husband is weeping and bawling. And he's going, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And the sixth or fifth or sixth grade boy falls on his knees in front of his dad and goes, Dad, we love you. Dad, we love you, but your temper is killing us. And the mom gets on her knees and goes, Sweetheart, this family loves you, but sweetheart, you can't keep doing this, this family. And the dad's weeping and the mom's hugging. And I'm going, what in the world just happened? And they begin to weep and talk, and then they kind of remember I'm there, and they turn back, and, and the dad said, three days ago, I exploded on my son, and my temper that my family's had to live with, and this is a deacon in the church. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, out of the 15 or 16 appointments, I only had two of them that didn't have something like that. 
Now, do I think that happens every single time? Absolutely not. But I'm going to tell you this. God will give you confirmation that this is the way you do ministry. Your force of personality, the force of conversation, the force of logic, the force of hard work, the force of event planning, the force... We're we're going to do some of those things. I'm still going to get on stage and speak. But the truth is, I don't have anything if Christ is not the power. So your ministry is to be incarnate. And your ministry is to pray. The most radical thing you'll do all day is to believe that God's at work. The most radical thing you'll do. It is of such significance that even the apostles who believe very much in compassion... The apostles would say in Acts chapter 6, yes, come help us, come do compassion, but we've got to give ourselves attention to the ministry of the word and prayer. Don't, don't you dare back burner. Don't you put five pounds or three pounds or seven pounds on your prayer life. I want to hit two other things. I'm just going to brush across them. The second one is I want God to be my stronghold. If God is not my strength, then clever thought is my strength, and new insights will be my strength, and talent and ability will be my strength, and a great staff will be my strength, or human effort will be my strength, or ingenuity will be my strength. Craig Groeschel calls that being a Christian atheist. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Do you know what a leader is? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he calls him a servant, but he uses the word servant for the word under rower. He, he, uses the, he doesn't use the Greek word doulos. He uses the word under rower. He points to the bottom of a Roman galley ship. You don't attain to the bottom of a Roman galley ship. You're stripped of everything else. When you don't have anything else, you're the And Paul says, that's who we are. All great ministry comes out of weakness. It doesn't come out of strength. A friend of mine, Glenn Elliott. Glenn Elliott was being so-called promoted in leadership in his congregation. And he's, he's being promoted. A group of people came in to sort of help him in his leadership. And they talked about his leadership and his leadership skills. And he was describing them. And he said at the end of the day, they said to him, Glenn, we don't think you understand real leadership. Not biblical leadership. Glenn goes, what do you mean? I was a leader in high school. I was a leader in college. I was a leader. I've been a leader here. They said, no, go back and read the scriptures tonight and see if you can't figure out what real leadership is. Glenn's a sweet, dear friend. Glenn said he spent all night in prayer. He said, I've never wept so hard in my whole life. He said, in the middle of the night, it hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, biblical leadership is always tied to words like humbled and broken and nothing and weak and foolish and lowly and inadequate. And suffering and hard work and tears and persecution. And he said, I've been leading out of my strength. And the scripture always says, you lead out of your weakness. Prayer is where I, every single day, recalibrate my life and say, I'm not adequate, God, but you are. And God, nothing else will be my stronghold today. My organizational skill is not my stronghold today. You are. Let me give you the last one. Here's the last one that I would give you. There's a delightful, delightful place of prayer that God has already made for you. God has already made you to be a great prayer. Now I want you to hear me on that. He's already made you to be a great prayer. You can hardly be bad at prayer at all. 
There are three acts of God in particular that I want you to, to, to hear. I, 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 want you, I want you to see as, as, as the band goes ahead and comes on. The three acts that God has done involve the Trinity. Every single part of God has already stacked the deck for you to be a good prayer. Don't tell me you're a lousy prayer. No, God's already, he, he's already greased the slide. No, no. It's hard to be a bad prayer. You see, here's where it goes. The Father, the Father bids you to call him Abba. That is Father. If I could set a chair and set the, the, the Father in it, call me Daddy. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, my eyes are on you. My ears are open to you. This concept of the Father leaning in. The second part of the Trinity goes like this. Jesus has already given me his righteousness. What right do I have to come in front of a holy God? Jesus said, here, wear my righteousness. Let's take your filthy rags. Let me deal with those. You wear mine. And I end up wearing borrowed clothes because Christ led the way. Christ reconciled me. I have the right to come into the presence of Christ reconciled and wearing robes of righteousness. I, I don't have to. To, to cower, come in. Not only that does Christ lead the way, but the scripture even says that Christ is always interceding. So I have a, the first chair of the Father leaning. I have the second chair. I have the Holy Spirit, or the, Jesus reconciling the third chair of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit. That we're sons and daughters of God. And then in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8, it says, And when we don't know how to pray, it's the helper. Can I even say translator? Interceding on behalf. So this morning you may have gotten up weak and don't feel like you have tons of self-discipline. The band, you can go ahead and come on. You need to know God already stacked the deck. There are three chairs sitting everywhere you ever go. Those three chairs are there. The Father leaning to listen. The Son reconciling and bidding you to come. And the Holy Spirit translating and helping. And here, let me rephrase that. If you think self-discipline is the key to prayer, you're probably wrong. Self-discipline makes it a duty. Worship. Worship. Prayer is not even the emphasis on prayer. When I call Julie, my wife, my emphasis is not on the phone. My emphasis is on Julie. So when I come into the presence of God, my emphasis is not on prayer. My emphasis is on worship. There's nothing wrong with any of us that worship won't cure. And so when you get up in the morning and when you walk... Some of you will be eloquent and you'll write long prayers and you'll journal and it will be wonderful. And it will be deep. And others of you, you won't do that. You'll simply pray 30 to 50 times a day. You will stop before you walk into a room and say, God, I want to be incarnate in that situation, but I don't know how to be. Would you strengthen me? Some of you will pray when you walk out of a room. I don't know how you'll do it. There'll be a variety of the ways you do it. But I'm going to guarantee you there's actually four chairs here. There's the one the Father leans in. There's the one Christ bids you to come. The one the Holy Spirit. And there's a fourth chair. Will you fill the chair in worship if you do? your ministry will have power. If you do not, your ministry will be shallow. There's nothing wrong with us that worship won't fix. Christ didn't just give me the principles of how to do ministry. He gave me the way to do ministry.